Our scripture is the 10th chapter of Daniel, the 10th chapter of Daniel, the liturgy of the Messiah. Daniel 10, the liturgy of the Messiah. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long. And he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. In those days I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. And in the fourth and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hittichel, then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine cloth of Upa, a gold of Upa. His body also was like the burl, and his face is the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard I the voice of his words, and when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground. And behold, an hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright. For unto thee am I now sent, and when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days. For yet the vision is for many days. When he had spoken such words unto me, I set my face toward the ground, and I became dumb. And behold, one like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spake, and said unto him that stood before me, O my Lord, by the vision my sorrows are turned upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can the servant of this my Lord talk with this my Lord? For as, me straight, as for me straightway there remained no strength in me, neither is there breath left in me. Then there came again and touched me one like the appearance of a man, and he strengthened me and said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be unto thee. Be strong, yea, be strong. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for thou hast strengthened me. 
Then said he, Knowest thou wherefore I come unto thee? And now I will return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. But I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth. And there is none that holdeth with me in these things but Michael, your friend. In this chapter, Daniel tells us that he had spent three weeks in mourning and fasting. Daniel was in grief because of the visions that had been given to him. Visions that declared that even though Jerusalem was to be restored, God was raising up one great empire after another and finally was going to bring after the days of the Messiah judgment upon Israel and Judah. And they were being set aside. His grief was very great. Daniel was a patriotic Israelite. At no point does God rebuke him for his grief. Instead, God speaks of him as greatly beloved. The time of his mourning and fasting was the first month, the first 21 days. This enables us to date the event. The year began with the Passover and was followed with a feast of unleavened bread. It therefore brought back to mind the memory of the Exodus, God's great deliverance when by a series of ten plagues he had destroyed the power of Egypt and had released his people. And now, although there was to be a partial release, in that they were to return again to Jerusalem. The partial release was the prelude to the fullness of judgment when after the days of the Messiah, Jerusalem was to be destroyed. After these days of mourning and the fasting and of prayer, on the 24th day of the month, with his retinue, he was by the side of the great river, that is, the Tigris. And a vision appeared to him, and the blaze of that vision, which was not seen by his followers, caused them to run, to run and to hide themselves. And Daniel fell upon his face like a dead man. The vision is one which is familiar to those who have read scripture closely, because a similar vision of the Messiah appears also in Ezekiel 1, verses 26 through 28, and in Revelation 1, verses 13 through 15. 
And all three of these revelations and their accounts agree in the basic details as they describe he whom they see. Obviously, a person of the Godhead, ablaze like the sun. But more than that, from his garb, it is apparent that he is a king, but even more that he is clothed in priestly garments, in priestly garb. Now, this is a significant point. The law of the priesthood specified that a priest could only be clothed in priestly garb in the performance of his duty as a priest. The high priest of Israel then only put on his garb before he entered the sanctuary to perform his duty. Immediately thereafter, he took off the garb. The garb of a priest could only be worn by a priest during the performance of his duties as a priest. The Messiah comes. He appears in the garb of a priest. And he declares that he has been at war contending with the king of Persia, the power of the Persian Empire. This tells us at once what the liturgy of Jesus Christ is. The word liturgy today has a very narrow and restricted use, which in itself indicates the corruption that has beset Christendom. Because the word liturgy literally means public work. The liturgy, the public work of Jesus Christ, of the Messiah, is history. It is wrestling against the princes of this world and against the powers of darkness. It is overthrowing and destroying the power of sin and death. It is determining all of history and leading his forces, the forces of righteousness, in the struggle against evil wherever it exists. The liturgy, the public work of Jesus Christ, therefore, was not only the creation of all heaven and earth in the beginning and the determination of all things, but it was also his active revelation and participation in that history. It was his incarnation. It was his atonement whereby he publicly worked the destruction of sin and death. It was his power whereby he overthrew Pharaoh, overthrew Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Alexander the Great, Rome, 
and is working today to overthrow all the powers of darkness on all sides of us. This, then, is the liturgy, the public work of Jesus Christ. This vision, therefore, of the Messiah tells us three things concerning the Christ. First, that he is a royal and divine person, a God-king. Second, that he is a priest. And third, that his liturgy, his public work, is history. It is destroying the powers of darkness, of sin, and of death. This makes it clear why prophecy is an inevitable concomitant of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Since history is his domain, his liturgy, his public work, and since he is master of it, it is his ritual, he knows the liturgy from beginning to end, and he can speak through the mouth of his servants, the prophets, and declare the end from the beginning. He is a priest who is creator and lord over all things, and whose liturgical role involves entering history, who not only con claims control over all things, but masks and declares its total cost. But his claim to be the priest-king and his work as priest-king meets with the opposition of a fallen creation. And he speaks of his great enemy of the day as the king of Persia, the prince of Persia, that empire which declared itself to be the means whereby man was to be saved which declared that salvation was in and through the politics of the Medo-Persian Empire. The prince of Persia and the powers of darkness behind him represented the opposing force. But he declared that he would defeat them he names the next enemy, and then in the eleventh chapter goes on to speak of the defeat of the next enemy, the Prince of Greece, Alexander the Great, and his successor. But he also speaks of an ally. I will show thee that which is noted in the Scripture of Truth. And there is none that holdeth with me in these things but Michael, your friend. Michael, whose name means who is like God. The prince of the angels is spoken of as the prince, the guardian 
of God's chosen people. And he is Christ's ally. This signifies that in Christ's public work, in his liturgy, in history, his ally is Michael and his host, the chosen people of God in every generation. So that we who have been through the blood of Jesus Christ, separated unto him and made members of him, are now priests in Christ and under Christ. And it is our liturgy, our public work, to destroy the powers of darkness. This must be done in every area. This means that we must separate ourselves from ungodly churches because they are of the enemy. And we must establish true churches in Jesus Christ and wage war in his name. This means that we must establish Christian social orders, Christian states, And this is a part of our liturgy, our public work. It means also establishing Christian schools. It means also godly responsibility in our vocation. It means also fulfilling our responsibility under Christ as fathers and mothers, as sons and daughters, as husbands and wives. This is our liturgy. For the believer, his liturgy, his public work is the totality of his daily life. And when a liturgy recedes to the church ritual, history and the world has been surrendered to the devil. A total liturgy, therefore, is every aspect of history declared to be the public work of the great priest-king, Jesus Christ. Christ's continuing ally is spoken of in Revelation 12:7 as Michael, representing the true church in every generation. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. Our role, therefore, as priests and kings under Christ is a real one. We are summoned to wage war against the powers of darkness, to set forth the victory of Jesus Christ over sin and death and over every power and principality to bring every thought and every domain, every area of life into captivity to Jesus Christ, that the kingdoms of this world might become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. This, then, is our calling, our role in history. 
and we are blessed by God, not as we become bystanders in the battle, but as we become Christian soldiers. This, then, is our call, to be with Christ in the performance of his liturgy. And because he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the victory is his. We have, therefore, the blessed assurance that as Michael and his hosts fight against the dragon, they fight unto victory. And our cause is unto victory. If God be for us, who can be against us? Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we give thanks unto thee that thou hast called us unto victory. We thank thee that this is the victory which overcometh the world, even our faith. Make us bold, therefore, and confident unto victory. Day by day, O Lord, give us faith, zeal, and courage to be Christian warriors, to prepare ourselves for thy service, to yield ourselves unto thee, and to battle unto victory in thy name. We thank thee, our God, for so great a cause. In Jesus' name, amen. Are there any questions now? Yes. It's been years since I've seen it. Uh, very low. The pyramidologists are basically occultists, and although they present their thesis in the form of Christianity, Basically, they are hostile to Christianity. They believe that there is another and a better revelation as a guide to the present and to the future. And this is the pyramids, with their so-called secrets. The pyramidologists have been excellent in telling us what has happened and reading that into the pyramids. Their books have been worthless in telling us what is to come. As I've mentioned before, if you look at the books of the pyramidologists at the beginning of the century, they are no guide to the future. They don't know what's coming, although they tell you with great detail how everything in the 19th century was foretold in the pyramids. The pyramidologists after World War I were the second, the same. They couldn't tell you that a second World War was coming. To me, not only are they... Uh, not Christian, but they represent so many manifest absurdities that uh, 
I think a Christian had better beware of them. They lead into dangerous things as well as to nonsense. since I've read Davidson, but the point still remains. He sees the pyramids as a basis for prophecy. And the basic meaning of the pyramids is occultism. Uh, the occultism of the pyramids is that man is going to become God. This is the real meaning of the pyramids. They represented the religious faith of Israel, whereby the pyramid pointing upward represented man moving upward to become a god. It was a leveled-off Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel was a stepped pyramid. The pyramids were a stylized Tower of Babel. Now, the pyramid pointing upward represented man becoming a god. The symbol of the gods was the pyramid pointing downward which indicated that the gods, having become gods, were now reaching downward to help men become gods. The perfect social order was the coalescence of these two pyramids, the downward uh, thrust uh, being joined by the upward movement of the pyramid pointed upward, and of course, what you had when the two met was what is called the Star of David, but which has no connection with David and had no connection with Judaism until Zionism introduced it. It is an ancient esoteric symbol for the human order when all men become gods. The gods and men become one. Now this is the real meaning of the pyramid. The pyramid was a monument to an anti-Christian faith. So it is unthinkable that God would use the builder of a pyramid to make a revelation. And God makes his revelation in and through Scripture. Another question? Yes. That's one aspect, but everything we do is a part of our liturgy. I referred some time ago to a sign that a woman in London had over her kitchen sink, which I think is a classic. And she had typed out this little uh, card and posted it above her sink. Divine services performed here three times daily. That was a part of her liturgy. The liturgy, therefore, the public work, involves the totality of our life, whereby we reveal in every area the purpose of God, the glory of God. declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. The other, 
Every man, being a creature of God, testifies within himself against himself. So that Paul says they hold down the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, the truth is there in every man's heart witnessing. But they, King James reads hold, but more literally, hold down. They suppress it. It's there continually in every man everywhere on the earth. But they suppress it. They hold it down in unrighteousness. So if they've never heard the gospel, they still have two witnesses. Yes. commandment 
to love thy neighbor in Leviticus 19. The chapter concludes with saying the stranger within thy gates, including the Egyptian, who's been your oppressor, who is your enemy, he too is your neighbor. So that love of neighbor includes everyone, the enemy as well. And love of neighbor is the fulfillment of the second table of the law. Thou shalt not kill, respect his right to life. Thou shalt not commit adultery, respect the sanctity of his home. Thou shalt not steal, respect his property. Thou shalt not bear false witness, respect his reputation. Thou shalt not covet. Keep these commandments in thought as well as in word and deed. Someone asked about that the other day, and there is a leaflet that I wrote for post-federal savings precisely on love of neighbors, so that if you want to use this with anyone, uh, give me a ring and I'll see to it that you get some copies of it, or you can write to post-federal for copies. Well, remember that I have mine with the clerk says that do good to them that hurt you and respect you. Yes. So they uh, uh, extend this and say, well, you must be good to the communist, and you must be good to the uh, That's right, but this does not mean tolerating evil or giving it a subsidy. Being good to them is extending to them the same God-given rights to life, home, property, and reputation that we insist they extend, uh, extend to us. We are being good to them. But we are never commanded in Scripture to extend a subsidy to evil or to tolerate it. And today people are asking us in the name of love, and their concept of it is existential, to subsidize evil, to give it in effect supremacy by saying evil is able to function and exist on its own terms. And we have no right to punish it. But God requires that evil be judged and punished. And when God says, Thou shalt not judge, what he is saying is that we have no right to judge in terms of our own standards and our own uh, opinions. But we do have the obligation to judge in terms of God's law through the state, through the church. We dare not, for fear of incurring the judgment of God, let murder, adultery, theft, false witness, and other sins get by without judgment, without punishment. Because then God says, we bear the guilt for these things also. When thou sawest a thief, thou altogether didst consent with him. How? By your refusal to do anything about it. Another question. Yes. Thank you.
If you have seen a man commit murder and theft, for example, and you say his reputation is good, you have borne false witness and violated the commandment of God. You are to bear true witness. You must be careful that the witness you make is truthful. But if you know that someone is definitely pro-communist, and you hide this from someone who is going to get involved or is going to hire them as a teacher, uh, you are uh, in the wrong there. You are born false witness by your silence. Yes. All right. going to go into this problem a little more just now by reading 
something from a newspaper of Sunday, July 23, 1967. This is amusing, but I think it uh, helps open up the problem. The title of it is Bedrooms Are for Husbands. It may not have handwriting on the wall, but your bedroom tattles on you nevertheless. It tells a lot about how your marriage is going, too. Does it remember resemble a catch-all for everything from the family mending to last year's dog-eared magazine? If so, you may be courting a deteriorating husband-wife relationship. Or is your bedroom one of those that resembles a designer's spotless showcase without a single sign that it's a cozy shelter for two tired people? Such a sterile environment is just as likely to rub a husband the wrong way. But you do want your bedroom to look nice without the feminine, frilly look that could make a masculine husband feel unwelcome, and so on. Now, it's a major problem, judging from this article as it goes on, to have a bedroom that won't drive your husband away. Now, what is the whole perspective here? This is, of course, a ridiculous uh, form of it, but the basic thesis is the religious faith of our age, environmentalism. In other words, it's the environment that determines everything. Whether your husband is faithful to you or not depends upon your bedroom. If it's too neat and too frilly, he's going to go away. If it's uh, too much a catch-all for everything you couldn't get into the other room, you're going to lose your husband. The environment, in other words. This last week on KLAC, I heard a broadcast of uh, a talk by a Negro sociologist who had been previously a minister. And who was to blame for the Negro riot? Why, the white man. After all, they were the environment of the Negro. And he went on to say that as a pastor, it had been his principle. Whenever he walked into a situation where there was a problem, he said, he gave this example, if he walked into a house or was called into a house where a woman was throwing dishes around and uh, breaking up the furniture, uh, he immediately grabbed a hold of the husband and said, you're in the wrong, apologize to her. Immediately, go tell her your story for all you've done that's wrong. It had to be his fault. And he went on to say, this is the principle, when he was questioned about this, that I learned in books written by white men. All the books that taught me this were written by white men, so don't blame me for my opinion. Well, he was right there. This is the faith of our day. Governor Hughes spotted off at first rather bluntly about the riots in New Jersey, but then when he was through, whose fault was it? Not the Negro. Oh, no. Not enough funds for housing, for welfare, and so on. And what has Mayor Kavanaugh of Detroit just gotten through saying? That our problem is a reactionary Congress that is not appropriating enough billions 
to take care of these people. Now this is environmentalism, and environmentalism says when there is a problem anywhere, it is a consequence not of sin, but of a lack. They aren't loved enough, or not enough money has been spent on them. So, remedy the lack. And what does this mean? Subsidizing evil. Has your husband walked out on you? Well, then it's your fault. Maybe your bedroom was not furnished properly. Are the Negroes rioting? Why, it has to be our fault. We haven't spent enough money. Now, this is the religion of our day. And this is the religion which is preached from 99 pulpits out of 100 today. It is environmentalism. And you're not going to have any different a world. In fact, you're going to have progressively a much worse world until that religious faith is shattered. Yes. What? Yes, they do. It is a fanatical religious faith on their part. Yes, because I have argued with any number of them in many, many places, and not only so, but this has infected people who are supposedly fundamentalistic or reformed or orthodox Lutheran, so that as I speak in various places, these people come up and say, I'm a Bible-believing fundamentalist, or I am a good uh, reformed church member, and or I am... Uh, born and bred in Missouri Lutheran Church and its schools, and I believe the Bible from cover to cover. But, but, and then they give the whole gamut of environmentalism. And it's a passionate thing with them. And earlier this year, I had a man who is uh, superintendent of schools in one of our major cities in this state, and by his own statement, a Bible-believing Christian telling me I'm doing a lot of harm and preventing a real solution to these problems because of the sort of thing I'm saying against environmentalism. What we need is a Christian interpretation of the whole thing. And what he had to say was pure progressivism and Deweyism and so on. But he was quite passionate about it. Yes. Yes, I agree with you. One supposedly conservative editor in this area had quite a nasty editorial on how wicked Congress was for refusing to approve of this rat extermination program. It didn't occur to that conservative editor that people can kill their own rats. Congress has to do it. To give you to something of our problem. Now, one of the most influential thinkers of our day who has a powerful influence in church circles is Marshall McLuhan. Marshall McLuhan is now at Fordham. He's gone there, I believe, from Montreal, uh, Toronto. 
And this is the kind of thing that Marshall McLuhan teaches. And I'm reading from his book, and the title is an indication of the, his mentality. The medium is the massage, an inventory of effects. Quote, electric circuity has overthrown the regime of time and space and pours upon us instantly and continuously the concerns of all other men. It has reconstituted dialogue on a global scale. Its message is total change, ending psychic, social, economic, and political parochialism. The old civic, state, and national groupings have become unworkable. Nothing can be further from the spirit of the new technology than a place for everything and everything in its place. You can't go home again, unquote. Then again, I quote, the new feeling that people have about guilt is not something that can be privately assigned to some individual, but is rather something shared by everyone in some mysterious way. This feeling seems to be returning to our midst. This feeling is an aspect of the new mass culture we are moving into, a world of total involvement in which everybody is so profoundly involved with everybody else and in which nobody can really imagine what private guilt can be anymore. Unquote. Quote, we are now, we have now become aware of the possibility of arranging the entire human environment as a work of art as a teaching machine designed to maximize perception and to make everyday learning a process of discovery. Application of this knowledge would be the equivalent of a thermostat controlling room temperature. It would seem only reasonable to extend such controls to all the sensory thresholds of our being. We have no reason to be grateful to those who juggle these thresholds in the name of haphazard innovation, unquote. In other words, in order to have a good society, you must have total environmental control, as total a control as a thermostat controls the temperature of a room. Then again, I quote, the young today reject gold. They want roles, R-O-L-E-S, that is, total involvement. They do not want fragmented, specialized goals or jobs. We now experience simultaneously the dropout and the teach-in. The two forms are co-relative. They belong together. The teach-in represents an attempt to shift education from instruction to discovery, from brainwashing students to brainwashing instructors. It is a big, dramatic reversal. Vietnam, as the content of the teach-in, is a very small and perhaps misleading red herring. It really has little to do with the teach-in as such, any more than with a dropout. The dropout represents a rejection of 19th century technology as manifested in our educational establishment. The teach-in represents a creative effort, switching the educational process from package to discovery. As the audience becomes a participant in the total electric drama, the classroom can become a scene in which the audience performs an enormous amount of work, unquote. 
Then his definition of art, I think, is a good one to close with. Art is anything you can get away with. Now, I quote this man because he is so tremendously influential in church circles today as well as outside. So that while these things seem absurd to us because we are within the faith, we have to realize that this is a passionate faith with men on the outside. This is their religion, their crusading for they're marching for it. They're ready to kill for it. They believe in it, and they believe it's going to create a glorious paradise without God, of course. And there is going to be really heaven on earth. Now, in terms of this, facts, as you and I see them, mean nothing to them. Because every faith conditions the facts you see. Yes, one more question.